The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, folks, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from the earlier years of the podcast. This week, it's the best of self-help stories, stories about people at crossroads sorts of moments who found ways to help themselves, whether it was by steering clear of doing themselves more harm or leaning into doing themselves more good. In a little bit after the commercial break, we're going to hear from Amy Salloway, who is our Midwest instructor for our school at thestorystudio.org. I'll say more about Amy after her story. But first, a story that I myself first shared on the podcast all the way back in 2012. It's about how, when I was 17, I started learning in what was for me then a new and powerful way that healing can come from telling stories. So without further ado, here I am with a story I call Man at Hawaii.
The morning of my first day of high school, I sat in an auditorium with about 300 other freshman boys. There were going to be a lot of speeches from a lot of Jesuits. And first, an older priest with beige hair came striding out on stage. He had a kind of a JFK look about him, and uh, he meant business. He said, boys, we have a motto at St. Xavier High School, men for others. What's most important to us is that you learn who you are and what you can do with who you are to help anyone who could use it. I felt like the Jesuits recharged my batteries that day because they were Catholic, like I was Catholic, but they seemed to be talking about it in a much more vital way than I'd heard before. (laughs) As I came to think of it, they were speaking Jesuit. See, in grade school, I cherished my religion. But when the nuns taught us that religion was about having a relationship with God, (laughs) I couldn't really wrap my brain around that. To me back then, being Catholic was like that warm, glowing feeling of singing Handel's Messiah with the choir at Christmas. Or this almost weightless sensation I remember having kneeling before our parish replica of Michelangelo's Pieta at Easter. I mean, I love being Catholic because I love the art, but the art was always about the same thing. These transcendent incidents. You know, God would have his favorite children, and one day he would bestow on one of them an epiphany, or sometimes even just like a quick trip to the twilight zone, you know, like... St. Margaret uh, having great debates with dragons or um, St. Dennis pulling his head off of his neck for whatever purpose that served. But I mean, these people got to step out of banal reality and experience extraordinariness. And the nuns taught us to call those moments religious experiences. Of course, the guy who got the ultimate religious experience was Christ in the crucifixion and the resurrection, and I was especially obsessed with that story. I mean, this man endures pain and more pain and more pain until he's obliterated. Like when a rocket breaks the sound barrier and just vanishes into the stratosphere. And Sister Adriana said, the cross was a portal to another realm, a place so remarkable you can't even imagine it. And I remember being maybe nine and watching the rain trickling down my bedroom window one Saturday afternoon and just 
wondering what were the thoughts that were going through his head when he was hanging up there? How did he feel when he expired? And then what was his experience? I mean, what was the change? Because of course he comes back. And when he does, he's something beyond human. Now, he's completely God. <laughs> That's a religious experience. And I wanted one, too. But, as of that first day of high school, I had an opposing desire. I had Father JFK in my head, saying, Kevin, make the change. Away from fantasy, toward doing things as a man for others. And I did not. I just started fantasizing I would. <laughs> I pictured myself spoon-feeding grandmas and teaching kids on crutches to walk again. And the worst part is... I'd even daydream of ways I could be a little showy about it. You know, just to make sure some Jesuit would notice me doing these things. And then I could daydream about people walking through the halls of St. X saying, That Kevin Allison, he's like a redhead St. Francis. Meanwhile... There were weekly opportunities to do community service through my school. But I just stuck to the fantasy. Then, at the end of junior year, Father JFK called me to his office. Now, I never actually met this man. I didn't even really know what his job was. But... He impressed me again. He spoke with just as much purpose as he had that first day. He said, Kevin, I think you'd be a good candidate to go on our seven-week summer trip to some of the most poverty-stricken areas in Peru. I thought, wait, fuck. He's got the wrong Kevin. <laughs> I mean, I knew of at least one Kevin who was huge in the community service program. I mean, the only thing I was known for at school was doing the musicals. But he said, I'll tell you, Kevin, you can look through a copy of um, Time magazine, see pictures of starving kids in some far-off country. But what if you could open your own wallet? And see a picture you took of some kid and say, well, now there's Miguel, and I've done good things for him. Well, I like that thought. <laughs> I mean, it fit in well with my redhead St. Francis daydreams. So... It was the summer of 1987. There were 16 kids and six adults. Now, for the first maybe 10 days, the trip was kind of a bust. 
the politicians and donors to the Jesuits in Lima didn't want us to see the dark side. So they had us staying in a rectory with gardens and falling water. This is what I actually wrote in my journal then. I'm frustrated. Now that we're here, I want to see what I can do. There's people in serious need very nearby. Now what can I do? So the Jesuits said, all right, kids, uh, plan B. (laughs) We're going to improvise. We ended up taking a 20-hour bus trip across the Peruvian desert to get to this small town called Arequipa. And about 14 hours into this ride, we stopped to get water. There was a shack mostly just random pieces of wood nailed together with nothing but the flat dirt ground surrounding it on all sides for miles and miles. But what stuck out was that a sign had been tacked on this structure that read Hawaii. It almost seemed like a joke. Like it really meant, yeah, I got your desert oasis right here. So everyone, kids, Jesuits, translators, jumped off the bus and rushed to the shack ahead of me. And that's when I saw that other than the guy selling water in the shack, there was one other human being out there. This nomad, this filthy skeleton of a man in rags. I guess he was in his 20s, but he may as well have been 60. He seemed shell-shocked to see us. He didn't seem aware that drool was stringing from his chin or that tears were tracing through the dirt on his cheeks, or that two vultures were circling over and over about 50 feet above his head, just waiting. And he stared. He just stared with these milky eyes, like the eyes of a stricken dog, desperate, you know, dying in the road. I was frozen. When he looked at me, I looked away. And then my friend Steve, another kid on the trip, he came up behind me and said, that's God over there. And he's staring at us. (sighs) And part of me felt like rolling my eyes because I thought Steve was being showy. (laughs) And then another part of me was probably a little envious that he had come up with such a, you know, good Jesuit kind of line. But part of me knew he was right. And Steve handed me a bottle of water. And I was about to say, what can we do? But the bus driver started shouting, Vamanos, Vamanos! And we were all jumping back on the bus, and then we were on our way again. 
The rest of the ride, I stared out the window, thinking, Kevin, what did you do? I mean, if that guy wasn't in need, who is? <laughs> You're a sad excuse for a um, redhead St. Francis. Well, the Jesuits did a bang-up job of finding us less comfortable accommodations in Arequipa. Our new retreat house was an abandoned prison. No electricity, very infrequent, and freezing cold water. And because of the way it felt, I came to call the little cot in my cell the saltine. But I was into this. I said, okay, Kevin, maybe living like a poor person will kick you in the ass and get you interacting with them. But that first night, as I was trying to drift off, I looked toward the doorway of my tiny room, and I saw a shadow there in the shape of a small man. And then, those eyes, those milky eyes, staring. Well, of course I knew I was just imagining things, so I turned and I looked out the window, but I could still feel those eyes behind me. I, I tried distracting myself. Uh, singing a song, and then I closed my eyes. But inside my eyelids, like he was right on top of me, I saw those eyes. Well, I jumped out of bed. I started pacing the hallways. I never doubted that it was all in my head. Obviously, it was all in my head. But it wouldn't get out of my head. So I, I went to the little room that they had designated as the chapel to maybe pray it away. Now, this room had been empty when we got there earlier that day, but now I found that there was one candle on one little table in the center of the room. And it was shining up on the goriest, screamingest, crucifix I'd ever seen. And on the face of this butchered little figure were those eyes. If only this was a daydream. I remembered what this atheist kid said in religion class one day at school. He said, most of those saints, when they were having their religious experiences, they were really just people whose own brains turned against them. They were really just going insane. Well, maybe so. I mean, those religious experiences, there's not a lot of evidence on the ground. They happen in the mind. Or someplace you can't even pinpoint. So you walk away wondering, am I really making solid sense out of what actually is? Or am I just telling stories. 
Then I noticed someone had left a yellow legal pad and a pen in a corner of the chapel. So I sat down on the concrete with that horrific crucifix glowing above. And I wrote at the top of the page, Man at Hawaii. And then a poem addressed to this man just gushed out of me. Man at Hawaii. What of me gives you to be? Who in me gives you to dance in my nightmares? To breathe in my ear chilled depth? Are these my hands that strangle and push your repulse? I mean, the pen never left the page. No revisions. Just a torrent about how I would rather drive nails through his hands and dig thorns into his forehead and stab a spear into his side than to have to keep seeing his eyes in my brain. And it was a rush. It was like rapture, the writing. Almost like I was floating on air. Of course, you know... It was filled with the melodrama that comes with the author being 17. And of course, some part of me hoped it meant, you know, now I've had experience. I can show great art to the world. But also, in my heart, it was a prayer. I was admitting to God, or at least to myself, that I just wasn't what I hoped to be. I am not what I hope to be. And I probably never will be. In the last few lines, I predicted even more failing to live up to my ideals. I pictured what it would be like to return to Ohio. And I wrote, And and when when I I am am there, there, home and warm, I will not be seeing you, only comfortably killing you, thousands of miles away. Well, the rest of the trip went as planned. We got the ball rolling on the building of a school for the kids on the outskirts of the city, and I did come home with pictures of those kids in my wallet. I don't know how much of a difference I made in any one of their lives, but I remember them. Anyway, I shared that poem with my friends on the trip, and a few months later, in my senior year, a copy of it made its way to the desk of Father JFK. So he called me into his office again. He said, Kevin, you know what next Thursday is. I did not. He said, we'll celebrate a mass for the feast of St. Francis Xavier in the gym. The student body, the faculty, all 1,300 of us. I want you to give a speech during the service. I want you to read that poem and tell the story. 
I felt electrified. I thought, okay, I'll show him I know how to speak Jesuit now. I'm going to Martin Luther King this thing. And I did. I mean, I gave it my everything. I still have these old cassette recordings of me rehearsing the speech. Sometimes I feel that wholeheartedly talking to God is something I have to get psyched up for. It's as if my faith is only a mood I'm sometimes in, an occasional inspiration. I think I may never stop seeing those eyes. Everything I was wrestling with in Peru seemed to be in those eyes. If, perhaps, while I read this poem, you found somewhere in your imagination the faintest image of those eyes, I'd like to remind you, that's God, and he's staring at you. As I stand here today and look up at these 1,300 or so pairs of eyes, I can say that also is God, and he's still staring at me. I mean, you could certainly say my performance was showy. I mean, sometimes it was downright Shakespearean. Just like the poem, it had all the melodrama that comes from the author being 17, but my heart was in it. And from those 1,300 people came a standing ovation in the middle of a mass. And the rest of the day, people I'd never spoken to before, jocks, goth guys, people I was scared of, they kept stopping me to say, hey man, that was a hell of a speech. Well, that night at home, I was doing the dishes in the kitchen, and I was still kind of hearing the applause in my head. And at one point, I turned and I looked out the window of the kitchen door. And there he was, with those eyes. Of course, it was all just in my head again, you know, my brain turning against me. But this time, I felt like I could hear what he wanted to say. He was saying, you think you've done something? Telling stories about how, for me, you did nothing? And he was there that night when I was trying to get to sleep again. And I started pushing him out of my mind all over again. But a couple months later, I ran into Father JFK in the hallways at school. He said, congratulations, Kevin. And I thought, oh, what praise am I going to get now that I'm not sure I completely deserve? But he said, this year, we had five times as many applicants for the Peru retreat and seven times as many applicants for the Appalachian retreat. And at Jesuit schools in Chicago, Indianapolis, and New York, where we sent copies of your speech, they saw increases in applicants for mission retreats, too. And the one thing damn near every boy said in his application was that he knew he had to do something because of your speech. It was 
too much for me to process. But then he said, see, this is what we mean. When you told that story, you were a man for others. And I thought, okay then, that I can do. We'll be right back. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're back. Oh my gosh. So in fall of 1989, just as I was sort of closing in on graduating from the University of Minnesota, two things happened for me simultaneously. One, I acquired an actual bona fide traditionally defined boyfriend for the first time in my entire life. Thank thank you. Thanks. And two, I acquired an illness. So No one could believe that David and I were a couple because I was on the far end of extroverted, loquacious, loud. I was a theater major. I was loud. And David was quiet. He was shy. He was socially phobic. He wore a 100% organic cotton clothing in tan taupe and beige to try to blend in with the natural environment. He wore Clark's boots, a very quiet shoe. He he ate quiet foods like oatmeal, and whenever possible, he did not talk. Instead, he biked. He was a cyclist, and he would take long four- and five-hour bike rides into the Minnesota prairie and the trails and the forests, and when he came back, he smelled like the wind, and I would say, how was your bike ride? And he would hold out a pine cone, (laughs) which I figured meant good. (laughs) Also... David was beautiful. He was wispy and ethereal and incredibly toned from all that biking. And that is not 
what you would picture pairing with this festival of large, lumpy awkwardness. But I have a theory that I would like to introduce to you that I call the equalizer, which says that for a couple to be successful, the like flaws and detriments of one half of the couple have to be of equal weight to the flaws in the other half of the couple. They don't have to be the same flaws, they just have to be equally weighted. So, beautiful David, you know, had his social phobia and also the fact that he was going bald and that sort of pretty much equalized my extremely round physique. I mean, honestly, I wasn't really sure why he was with me. I asked him once. We had met at the Renaissance Festival, like, obviously, I know. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> um, and I asked him at one point, like, with all of the girls running around out there, what made you want to get to know me? And he said, I, I don't know. You, you, were, you were laughing and mischievous and bold. And I liked that. And I made a mental note to myself, dear self, please always be laughing and mischievous and bold. <laughs> so about three months after David and I started going out, I could not get out of bed. I was struck with this degree and intensity of tiredness that was alarming, like I was weighed down by anvils. I couldn't even like really lift my arms to wash my face in the bathroom or shampoo my hair. It was too exhausting. I was hot and cold and I had this brain thing going on where I would think a sentence in my head but the words that would come out of my mouth were totally different words. And I thought, oh, I don't know, I probably have some gross virus, like don't be a baby, Amy, suck it up. And I curled myself out of the apartment to go to my part-time student office job, but just climbing the steps up onto the bus, my legs would barely bend. I felt like I was 100 years old. I got to my desk at work where there was the stack of invoices that I was supposed to code and file, and I put my head down on them and fell asleep. And then I woke up and asked my supervisor if I could please go take a nap in the break room. And she looked at me like I was on something. I mean, I was 21 years old. What 21-year-old needs a lunchtime nap? I went home and I, I tried to sleep and sleep and sleep it off. But whatever this was, it didn't go away. I tried to go to rehearsals for my improv company and I got talked to about being apathetic and put on the inactive list. I couldn't go to auditions. I called in sick too many times to my office job and got fired. And this whole time, I was supposed to be working on my senior thesis project to be able to graduate Phi Beta Kappa Summa Cum Laude. And I had to set it aside and delay my graduation for a semester. And then I just lay in bed like a beach starfish, crying to David, you deserve a girlfriend who's pretty and has hygiene and wears clothes, and instead you have this. And he hugged.
hugged me and said, no, no, I want this girlfriend. You're sick now, but it's not forever. Just for now. Not forever, just for now. <laughs> and he, he took off from his office job to drive me to doctor's appointments in suburbs I had never even been to to try to figure out what was wrong with me. And all of the doctors said some variation of, you know, well, you're an overachiever. Clearly, you're under a lot of stress. Or, Amy, adulthood is a big transition. Maybe you have depression or anxiety or stress, overachieving. And I was like, no, I like being an overachiever. I like stress. I like anxiety and depression. Those are the norms for me. That's what I know. This is not the norm. They didn't know what to do with that, but they tested me for cytomegalovirus, Epstein-Barr, Lyme disease, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus. It's never lupus. Um, <laughs> and honestly, it wasn't any of those. All of those tests came back negative. And time passed. Imagine a seasonal montage. There you go. I felt like my body was this bizarre, distant planet. I gained 60 pounds. And then I got a referral <laughs> to go to an infectious disease specialist. <laughs> infectious disease. But this was the guy who told me what I had. He said, you have chronic fatigue syndrome. We think it might be an autoimmune disorder. We know that um, it's mysterious. It's sort of in epidemic proportions, mostly hitting young women. And I said, oh, okay, uh, well, bummer, but okay, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome, great. So what drug do I take? Um, what medication? Do, you know, let's start the chemo or the transplant or, you know, whatever we need to do because, you know, I'm 21 and I want to go achieve and have my dreams and live my life, woo. And he said, <clears throat> about that, <laughs> um, there is very little research into chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, no one knows what causes chronic fatigue. No one knows what path the disease has. There is no treatment protocol. There is no medication. There's no chronic fatigue clinic. There's no chronic fatigue specialists. There is definitely no cure. He finished by saying, Godspeed. I looked at David, who was there for comfort, sitting in a bright blue chair that he was not camouflaged in. And I thought, all this man wants are mountains and air and pine trees to hug. And now he is saddled with this human rubble. And all of a sudden, I was so angry at him for being beautiful and healthy. And then I was angry at myself for even having that thought. And then, I basically sunk into fear. When David and I met, he had planned to move to Seattle because he had a bunch of relatives that lived there, and then he didn't move because he was with me. But now he was in this holding pattern of being my caretaker, and I was lying comatose on a bed, which actually you can do in any city. It's a transferable skill. Um, <laughs> So when David asked, do you think maybe we could try living in Seattle? 
I said, yes, yes, of course, yes. I said yes, even though I was aware that Seattle was very gray and very rainy. I said yes because I knew that our equalizer was so far off. I had become needy and fragile and less desirable and less attractive and much more difficult to love. And I had to try to tip the balance back. So I told myself that I, I was going to visualize being healthy in Seattle. I mean, in fact, like, sure, it's rainy, but I mean, it is also like lush and green and organic with like rivers of coffee and tofu growing on trees. And I figured that is for sure the place where I will heal. I will heal. I did not heal. <laughs> oh, God. The gray of Seattle targeted the tiny speck of energy stored in my mitochondria and sucked it out like a fluke worm. <laughs> the moisture created what doctors refer to as a chronic inflammatory response. We don't have to get into immunology right here, right now. But Basically, this is why the elderly and infirm move to the Southwest. This is why your Bubby and Zadie have a condo in Phoenix. <laughs> because dry, arid climates help autoimmune disorders, and moist, humid climates make them worse. I got worse. And what's even more awful, I had no health insurance. I know, it was a total blast. Luckily, Seattle did have a lot of alternative medicine. They actually had a whole university where uh, they trained practitioners in like every possible modality of natural medicine. And then those clinicians had a student clinic, which was again, like not cheap, but compared to paying out of pocket for an allopathic doctor, like, it was my best option. And the clinicians like wore Birkenstocks and they all had names like Spirit and Salmon. I wanted to get back energy and stamina and normalcy so badly, I yes-anded every single thing they suggested. So I got acupuncture twice a week. I got craniosacral therapy. I got a constitutional homeopathic remedy. The six little pellets, little tiny pellets of health. Um, I got moxibustion, which is where, while you're getting acupuncture, they put a burning incense cone in my navel, yes, to warm up my chi. Apparently my chi was chilly. <laughs> Who knew? They put me on this extremely restrictive hypoallergenic diet. I mean, I must have eaten some normal foods that people recognize, but what I remember in my head is spending a year eating twigs and sand. Yeah. And a spirit and salmon said that I had 
to go get an array of full-spectrum lighting. This was the most important thing. They said that if you stare into full-spectrum lighting, it changes the neurotransmitters in your brain, the serotonin and dopamine, and that in turn affects wakefulness and energy and stamina and mood, and they sent me off to go get uh, full-spectrum lighting. So David and I trekked off to Seattle Full-Spectrum Lighting Supply, which was a store that had this um, sort of Peter Max-inspired yellow smiling sunshine wearing sunglasses as its logo. And um, I feel safe in saying that Seattle Full-Spectrum Lighting Supply's major clientele were not people with chronic illness, <laughs> if you get my drift. <laughs> so um, I went to the back of the store where the displays were, and there was this big tic-tac-toe grid of these huge, bright, bright white globe-style lights. And I, I walked up to those lights. My face was so close, I could hear my hair sizzling slightly. And the lights were humming. They had a hum and they were warm. They felt like a living creature. And something about being in that hot hum, that warmth, viscerally brought back the person I used to be. I felt so clearly what it had been like to be alive and laughing and mischievous and bold. I felt it, and it just devastated me. And I reached down and picked up two of those globe lights still in bubble wrap, and I looked at the price, and they were so expensive. They were so out of our price range. And I just clutched them to my chest like, two spare boobs, and like I was rocking back and forth and sobbing like a crazy person out of desperation to have something, some of this, and I, David was a few feet away, and I said, David, we're gonna get one light bulb, okay? We're gonna get one bulb! It was a hundred bucks, we took it home, and I screwed it into my crappy little lamp and stood by it like it was a beacon, like it was Devil's Tower. And I stood there day and night. David would come home from his job and say, Amy, did you go to work today? Did you call in sick again? Amy, you, you have to earn an income. And I would say, I'm, I'm absorbing the light, David! I'm absorbing the light, okay, God! I was really fun to be with. <laughs> David was so patient. He never laughed at the treatments I was trying or questioned their validity or my sanity, even though there was no real sign that anything was helping me. But we talked less and less, and our car rides went from silent to, like, deathly silent. And one day, I found David's bike calendar sitting on the kitchen counter. He had this little, like, calendar log where he would write in every day, you know, how many miles he rode and what the path was like and draw a little squiggle. 
And instead of mileage numbers, all of the days said, drive Amy, drive Amy, drive Amy. This illness hadn't just consumed me. I had let it consume him too. There was no more equalizer. And eventually David broke up with me. And when he did, I moved back here to Minneapolis. Imagine a montage, if you will, seasons, you know, the birds, Ecclesiastes, turn, turn, turn. (laughs) And now I'm here. I have had chronic fatigue syndrome for 30 years. Sadly, David was wrong. It wasn't just temporary. It's probably forever. A bunch of years ago, I saw a therapist who specialized in treating clients with disabilities. And I sat down on her couch, and I figured I was going to tell her my whole story. To my surprise, I started sort of gushing out a lot more emotions than I thought I had stored in me or that I was carrying around. I did not anticipate that I would suddenly be saying, I hate my body. I hate that it has willingly harbored this disease and been compromised by it. I hate every moment of life that I've lost and all the activism I wanted to do, the social justice I wanted to create, the art I wanted to put in the world. I am angry. I am angry that I have spent my life alone and without love. Because who is going to love this? Who is going to equalize with this? No one. The therapist let me disintegrate and then reintegrate again in my own time. (laughs) And then she said, Amy, listen to yourself. Has anything positive ever been created by an outpouring of hatred? (laughs) I don't think so. Amy, you are giving your body two conflicting messages. You're telling it, I hate you, and get better. (laughs) Those you can't, you can't do those two things. They don't go together. Amy, your body is a part of you. And chronic fatigue syndrome is a part of your body, possibly forever. You have got to stop waging a war on your physical self and find a way to accept it, partner with it, love it. You have to love your physical self, all of it, illness, included. And my response, of course, was, fuck that. (laughs) Like I am going to love the disease that has taken all of me away from me? And she said, just think about it. And so I do. I think about it all the time whether I can stop being angry and instead be grateful for my fucked up dysfunctional body that somehow, despite everything, is still here, is still surviving. I know, I know. I also think about whether maybe I could be angry at things that are outside of me instead of things that are inside of me. For example, 
maybe I could be angry at medical science that has invested no time or money into researching an invisible illness that affects millions of people every year, huh, most of them women. Or yes, or maybe I could be angry at Big Pharma and the healthcare industry, right, that refuse to develop a medication for chronic fatigue syndrome and refuse to cover medications used off-label that could make a major difference in my quality of life. Uh Uh-huh, or maybe I could be angry at, oh, capitalism (laughs) that set up, thank you, a society so rooted in classism, economic growth, and productivity that anybody forced to live outside those standards by illness or disability or single parenthood or anything is made to feel invisible, disposable, and worthless. Thank you. I am angry at those things. And I started to write about them and talk about them. And that has made me feel a little bit better. I can't yet imagine feeling self-love and acceptance filling me up with the power of a blinding white full-spectrum grow matrix magically bringing back all of me, radiant me. It's hard. That feels a long way off. But I think I can imagine one light bulb, one light bulb in one hand. Thanks. Wish that I was dead With an aching in my head I lay motionless in bed I thought of you And where you'd gone Let the world spin madly on And everything That I said I'd do Like make the world brand new Take the time for you I just got lost And slept right through the dark And the world Spins my This is Risk This is the Weepies behind me now And we just heard from Amy Salloway Amy teaches memoir and narrative Through Minneapolis Community Ed And she's a founding member of Off Kilter a new interdisciplinary performance cabaret of artists with disabilities. Look for Amy on Facebook at Awkward Moment Productions. And that's it for the best of self-help stories. If you've got a story about helping yourself, it could end up being helpful for others to hear it. So pitch it to us at risk-show.com submissions. And remember, all of our best of compilations like the best of funny stuff or the best of true crime stories 
for the best of sex stories, and so much more, is at risk-show.com slash special series. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I woke up, wish that I was dead, with an aching in my head, I lay motionless in bed. The night is here, and the day is gone, and the world spins mad I thought of you, the way you go, and the world spins madly on, and the world spins madly on, and the world spins madly on.